I'd like to welcome everybody to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group Thursday Night Alcoholics and God Speaker Step Series. Let's have our joke now, Chris. Hey, Chris. Joke teller. I sure am happy to be with you guys tonight to read this joke. I was so sick when I was new... I was so sick when I was new. At one point, I asked another guy in my home group if I could copy his fourth step. Thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start with our two-minute meditation. So please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off those devices that can make noise or will distract others. Take this time to get connected with God. Let the craziness of the day drift away and ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Is everybody ready? All right, let's start our meditation.
I'd like all of you to join me in the fog light prayer. God, let your love shine through me like a fog light so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. There is a solution from the big book, page 7, the tremendous fact for every one of us that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out of what we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious actions. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. We read uh, this because the main purpose of the 12th step is to have one, so it's kind of important to know how it works. And I've asked Chandra to read uh, the appendix to the spiritual experience. Hey, y'all. My name is Shonda. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Spiritual experience. The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God-consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety, because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life. That such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource, which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer. 
Okay, please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so set your phones to airplane mode or just turn them off. And I'd like to introduce the speaker this evening. She's going to be with us for three weeks, Karina D. My name is Karina, Recovered Alcoholic. And I'd like to start off by saying that God is good all the time, even when I don't think so. I'd like to thank the group for inviting me here and um, the group in particular for keeping the doors open for the sick and suffering alcoholic. And uh, particularly for me and my husband, uh, when we were foreign to Florida, uh, we lived in New York, and um, we would frequent this place when we were um, snowbirds, if you will. But you were always very kind and welcoming, and uh, we had a home here. And we so appreciated that. Uh, we traveled quite often, and one of the things that uh, was first on our agenda was to find an AA meeting in and around the area that we would be uh, living at that time. Hold on, I just want to get the rest of my belongings pretty much moved in. Okay. So, um, I was delivered into Alcoholics Anonymous in 2000, the, the, middle, the middle part of 2001, around the August, and um, I was dead behind my eyes. I could not stop drinking. I had a desperate desire to stop drinking, but I could not do that. Um, you know, it's a little bit foggy as to how long I had been drinking around the clock. Um, I'm going to say of the better part of five years. So, um, yeah, desperate desire to stop drinking. So many want to stop but cannot, and I'm in that category. Um, I could not be pacified by the world. I had tried to alleviate this restless, irritable, discontent feeling that I always had had from once I could remember. I know that today to be the spiritual malady. Um, I do believe that I was a freeze-dried alcoholic. I had all the isms as a child. Um, so I'll just give you a very minute background of uh, who I am as an individual and where I came from. Um, it's a lot to unpack. I've been asked to do the 12 steps in three weeks, and I'm going to try not to camp out in in one particular step, uh, and I'll try to do that to the best of my ability. And I keep hearing my husband saying, God's got it, because that's what he, that was one of his favorite lines. And so, um, yeah, I just couldn't be pacified by the world. It was just counterfeit. Everything that I had uh, thought would bring me satisfaction failed. I came up empty. And, um, you know, when I arrived here in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, I was shattered from the inside out. My whole life, I mean, I pretended most of my life so there wasn't really anything real about me. My, I was a fraud in my own life. And that's pretty, a pretty uh, sullied state to be in. Um, I, didn't, I could not tell the difference between reality and truth. And that also pertains to the alcohol, but also my life. And so, um, you know, I had defiled myself in so many ways 
and that just brought about more drinking. So um, I just I want to just give you a background of you know as I said who I am as an individual. Um, I had uh, two other siblings, both older than me, an older brother and an older sister. I was born in New York City Hospital in 1960, and we moved around a lot. Uh, my dad had left when I was two, um, and. Um, to add insult to injury, he had other families and knew where we were, but really never cared to come see us. So that kind of, uh, you know, it affected my identity. And, um, you know, I just felt like yesterday's garbage. And it really, uh, it, my, in my formative years, uh, growing up was uh, impacted by people that were unable or incapable of being able to communicate uh, in ways that were edifying and comforting. So that's, that's the father's side. My mother had untreated bipolar, and till this day does. She will not take medication. But um, she had three children at the age of 22. I was the youngest of the three. So having said all of that, my sister at the age of seven became the mother. And I was a wayward child, which simply means that um, I'm, I'm uh, unpredictable and uncontrollable. And uh, me and my brother, who was a year and a half older than me, were that way. And my sister had, as I said, the mother's role. So we, were, we ran around New York City um, just kind of um, resting, pulling and, falling, uh, pull, pulling and forcing things out of life that we thought that we needed. Um, I became an, a thief at a very young age. Um, my mother... Uh, we had the right to remain silent, and anything we can and said was used against us, right? And um, she had uh, broomsticks in every corner and would use them when necessary. Um, this is a little funny thing. I was 30 years old when I realized what this was, but she used to say, she had a very strange accent. She'd say, get over here so I can give you a lump of knowledge, right? And I... Never really knew what that was. We knew we had to come and get our beating. But when I was 30, I realized she, she, what she was saying was a lump of knowledge, which meant you won't do that again after I beat you up. Right? So, but that was, you know, it was a very darkonian way to raise children. We really, there was no democratic, we had no voice. And so I really was denied um, any type of emotions. Um, and so, you know, when I was, when I got here, I umbrellaed everything in my adult life as um, sadness or self-pity. And I didn't know what self-pity was until I arrived here. So anyway, I ha we had all of that, moved in and around Manhattan, and um, I had my first drink at 8. I guzzled... Um, <laughs> I see myself back there. <laughs> Another person ate. So I guzzled down a lot. It was a, hard, a bunch of hard liquor, and I went into what I now know to be a blackout. Um, I didn't start drinking. I didn't start drinking until I was around 16 with my friends. We were chipping in, chipping in in the um, parking lot, and we had the potheads, we had the uh, barbiturate people, and then you had the real alcoholic, which was me. I loved beer, believe it or not, and uh, that was one of the things that I drank often. Um, and uh, you know, I would drink to guzzle. I, I was not. It was for effect. You know, in the textbook of Alcoholics Anonymous, 
which is the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It says that men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Well, that was me, and the effect produced by alcohol for me was ease and comfort because I, as I said, in my natural state, I'm restless, irritable, and discontent. So fast forward, you know, I go through uh, my teens and into my young adult life. I had my son when I was 16 years old. I had ran away from home. And during the ages of 16 and, say, 26 is really where my drinking took off. Um, I was extremely lonely, extremely lonely. Um, I was estranged from my family, and that was something that I wanted to be because I just couldn't deal with I, I had a different um, philosophy in life as they did, and um, particularly my mother, and I had a major resentment with her. Um, uh, if there was a, a, a deeper word than hate, I guess disdain would be it. I had it from my mother, and it was very unfortunate because um, I really loved her, but I hated her as equally. And uh, one of the things that was generating that hatred was uh, my brother, uh, who I said was a year and a half older than me, had ran away with me. And the same week that I got pregnant, he got shot and killed in the street. And the way I interpreted that in my spirit was, if she was the right kind of mother, I would not ha have had to run away, and therefore my brother would not have gotten shot and died. I never once thought about my mother losing a child. It was my brother, and I lost my brother. And so um, that resentment lasted very long time until I got here long enough once I put down the drink and was able to get into inventory. So anyway, um, alcohol became my master. Um, it determined where I was going to go. If there was not alcohol there, I was not going to go. Um, during Between the ages of 16 and 25, um, I went through the punk rock stage, the uh, motorcycle I hung out with a motorcycle crowd. I was riding bike. I ride motorcycle also. And um, there was a lot of everything. We just did a lot of everything. And, um, you know, my son at that time was uh, very young. And I remember um, everybody, the, my, my uh, gang, my motorcycle gang was out, you know, doing what they do, and I had to stay home and be a mom. And I remember putting my son to bed. I think he was about two years old. And I left the house, and I went to go hang out with everybody at some bar, like, I don't know, miles away from my home. But I left my son sleeping, you know, in the house. And um, the person that I was dating a biker came up to me and said, get home. Like, you shouldn't be doing that. Like, this is how, how um, you know, I just just kept on just passing every line, uh, this distorted uh, mentality that I had. But I would do anything to get the next one and, um, and to be able to, be, to belong. And, uh, you know, these groups of people, you know, the, the punk rock people and the disco people. I even got into disco for a little while. And then ultimately it was the motorcycle people. But I can say the reason uh, now, today, looking back at that is that I had no identity. I had lost my identity. Um, I didn't know who I was. And um, I was looking for something out there. And um, I now know that it's God. But I searched high and low for it. And um, as I said, it, everything was counterfeit. It would leave me disappointed. But alcohol fixed all of that for a while. Alcohol did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And, um, you know, this went on endlessly. And I had a couple of um, 
first step experiences where, you know, I would cry out. I don't know that I cried out to God. I cried out to something. I can't do this anymore. It was that emotional bottom. And, um, you know, I would stay stopped for a little while. Um, I actually became a jewelry designer. I went to school for jewelry design, and I was really good at it. You know, I'm an artist, I'm a writer. I love expressing myself in those ways because I, I didn't really did not have any way of communicating. I, I wasn't good at speaking or talking, and that was uh, all over my inventories. You know, where was I dishonest? I never told people how I really felt. Um, and so, you know, I went to jewelry design school, and um, I, I stayed abstinent for a year and a half, you know, and at that time, I believe I was a potential alcoholic. The, the, the problem lies in, and they talk about it in the textbook, is that um, I, I didn't want to stop drinking at that time. Alcohol was still, still had some value to me for me. Um, so I stayed stopped for the year and a half, not knowing that I was an alcoholic. I, I knew that I was doing crazy, uh, tragic, absurd things. I would wake up with people I, I probably wouldn't go to lunch with. You know, um, it was just... Just things that I normally wouldn't do, I was doing while I was drinking. But um, so I stayed stopped. I, I, was, I graduated, and I was about to get into the field of jewelry design, and I went back to my old neighborhood. And I wanted to kind of, me and my sister always had this chasm between us. We never, because she was the mother, and we had this very distorted way. We just were not able to be sisters. And um, I was trying in some way to um, rebuild that relationship. And so I went back, and her and her husband, um, they were locals. They hung out in the bar, and that's where I went to meet her. And um, I met my soon-to-be husband, and, um, you know, that led me down a 14-year... Um, I ended up meeting this guy I dated. Um, I took his daughter in, and I raised a family in my alcoholism. You know, and I lived the quintessential double life because I'm really good at that. I've done that so many times in my life. Um, so um, I meet this guy. He's an athlete. He probably should have been professional, but his alcoholism held him back as well. But who sponsored us was the bars. So every time we won a game, and he would do football and uh, baseball. So it was around, it was summer and winter. And um, we would always go back to the local bar, whatever bar sponsored us. And it was, um, you know, it would be Sunday, we'd be playing the games, and we would be drinking into Monday, and uh, then we would go hang out on Friday, and then be Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and the drunks were just getting closer and closer together, and I was nursing myself come Monday and Tuesday. And, um, you know, as I said, this went on. Um, That marriage uh, lasted 14 years. Uh, there was some love in there. It wasn't all bad. Um, we di- I did the best that I could in it. Um, I really tried to be Susie Homemaker. I did everything that I thought a good... I had an old belief system. You know, uh, the wife takes care of the home. There was always a hot meal. I took care of both children. I was at all the plays. You know, and this is by day. Um, came the weekend, and as it seeped into the progression, by night, sometimes I would be drunk. You know, and... Um, you know, this went on. Anyway, that marriage disintegrated um, because of my alcoholism. Um, ultimately, at the age of 30, um, this husband tried to get me back together with my mother. He had lost his mother, and he was just trying to get us back, so I was trying to have her over, and it would always blow up. 
but I'd have to pregame before my mother came because not only did she press the button, she's the one that created those buttons, so she knew where to press them. But even the sound of her voice, because I still had all of this untreated alcoholism in me and all this resentment. And so I pre-gamed every time. And uh, this one particular night, I was about 32 years old, and um, I had made dinner, pre-gamed, and I was drunk before she came. Well, anyway, um, the night blew up. She said one thing, I said another. I slammed the door on her face, but before she left, she screamed out, you're an alcoholic. And that really, like, sat in the cannon of my ear. Like, every time I picked up a drink afterwards, that changed everything, right? But I resented her for that. You know, I was like, yeah, you don't drink, you cause people to drink. Like, that was my attitude with her. And um, I remember, um, I, I was, as I said, I liked drinking beer, and I would get these tall boys. And after shopping or whatever, I would take my tall boys and literally... This is how distorted I was. I'd put them in where the crisper was, where you would put your salad, and I'd say, bye, little buddies. I really thought that was my friend. I didn't think that that was the problem. I'll see you later. So I'm a person that is, you know, responsibility. Like, I'm going to take care of everything, and then it's the reward system. Now I deserve this. And so I waited till everybody was taken care of, and then I would go and guzzle my booze. And I remember there's a, I think it's Fred, uh, where they talk about, where he talks about, um, you know, he just comes out of the asylum. I love that word. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Like that, you know, he just came out of the asylum. And, um, you know, it never occurred to him that he couldn't not drink, right? I always thought I wanted to drink, right? Uh, what would happen to me is like I would say, you know, I would go out with the intention or even stay in with the intention of having a few, but then I would have few more than I thought I would, that I wanted, and I thought I changed my mind. That's what I would tell myself, I changed my mind. But I didn't change my mind um, where the, now, I, you know, I'm, I have literally have black curtains on my, my windows. Like, I can't hear the birds. Like, I want to shoot them, you know, and I had the means to do it. I had arm, I had guns in my house, and I, that's what I wanted to do. So I did not change my mind. Alcohol changed my mind for me, and I did not know that at the time. But once I started to try to control it, because I kept hearing my mother say, you're an alcoholic, I, um, I said, you know, maybe this week I just, you know, I won't just drink or whatever. And came Friday, there I was again, and the more I tried to control it, the more out of control it became. So what I learned is that thinking about drinking, that obsessive-compulsive thinking, is just thinking about not drinking as just as obsessive compulsive because that is the thing that drove me. From that point forward, it was game on. And it was a lot of, you know, stealing and car wrecks. And um, I'll give you uh, one uh, really good example of my powerlessness. Um, so I'm getting into a lot of trouble with my husband now. Um, he, I'm getting checked at the door. I have no more integrity. You know, um, I'm, my alcoholism is disturbing him. It's not disturbing me. I'm the last person to know I'm an alcoholic, right? And um, now I'm hiding out at the beach on the summer times, you know, and um, now I have a lover. I've done the, I've, I've, uh, this is the worst thing that I could have done. And this is creating more uh, drinking for me. Like I cannot 
stay sober with the idea that, you know, I've stepped out on my marriage, right? And I'm doing this for, for more than a year. But um, so I'm hiding on the beach. Um, there's no cell phones at the time, and I love it there because nobody can find me. But what happens is, is um, I go out and um, I meet my lover, and uh, we have some wine. I told him I was an alcoholic. He didn't believe me. I told him I was an alcoholic. <laughs> and so we have a little bit of wine. And um, I don't know exactly what happened because I am Dr. Jekyll and Mrs. Hyde. You put one in me and you just don't know what you're getting. You know, I could cry most of the night. I could hang on you and in a curl ball wanting to be loved, or I can punch you in the face. We just don't know what's going to happen, right? And, um, you know, I do absurd, tragic things. But so we have this, and he says something that really enrages me. Um, I have the family's car. It's a Jeep Wrangler, and I have the top down. Um, my husband and I, uh, we could not afford the payments anymore. It was the very last payment of $350, and, um, and the car would have been ours. Um, and we just took, we just left fire and theft on it. We didn't leave um, a collision on it. And so I'm driving home from my lover's drunk. I am polluted. And I am in the third lane where I live doing 90. And somebody cuts me off. And I go like this with the wheel. Now, there's no top. I do not have my seatbelt on, and I'm drunk. And what happens is, is I hit the curb, and I fly up into the air, and I see Manhattan turn like I'm in a dryer. And I land, bounce, and come back up. The car is demolished. How I did not pump out of there is God's grace. My hands got onto the steering wheel. Um, I find myself walking backwards. Traffic had stopped on both sides. And through the grace of God, this is his story. It's not mine. I'm just a very bad character in it. And um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I'm walking backwards on the equivalent of the 595. It's 495 back home, crying, he's going to kill me. I look like Lucy. I'm so drunk. Somehow the ambulance come. They get me on a gurney. They get me to the hospital. I get to the hospital. I'm on the gurney in the hallway waiting for the surgeon. And, of course, I'm coming down, and I'm irate, and I'm yelling. I've seen things in the hallway, and I'm going to leave against doctor's orders. And the surgeon himself came out, and he... Put, took me like this, and he said, Mrs. Burnell, which was my last name at the time, he said, you can leave, but you will have a scar across your face. I did not know. I broke my nose flush. I looked like I was in a fight with Mike Tyson. I had a hairline fracture on my hip. But I heard, my vanity heard, that I will have a scar across my face. So I stayed. And I laid down, and I just, I didn't want the people in the hallway looking at me, so I pulled a white sheet over my face. And I'm mumbling under there, and I hear my husband. They called my husband. And he had to come all the way from Manhattan, which was a 45-minute drive. They pulled him out of, out of his job. And um, I hear him, and he must have asked where I was, and I hear him crying. And I'm under the sheet saying, here we go. He's going to just start badgering me. He's my father. He's just, you know, just trying to control me, this and that. And he drops to his knees, Karina. And I pull open the sheet, and I go, what? And he goes like this, because he thinks I'm dead under there, right? And this is the selfishness. You know, I have no clue of, you know, what I put him through. I, I, I'm not even interested in that. I'm just aggravated 
you know, at what's going on there. And so we get home, and as you could imagine, the car ride is not particularly fun. And um, I just can't wait till he leaves. He had a meeting to go to, and I wait to hear the car go. I hear the car go, and I peek out the blinds. I watch for a little while. I still have my orange cone on. I cannot walk. I'm hobbling. As I said, I had a fractured hip. And um, I wait, and I hobble to the corner store to get mine. And I get there. It was about a half a block. I get to the liquor store, and I guzzle down my Georgie. And I feel like the ease and comfort. Alcohol, king alcohol has unleashed its power. I get back to the house, and I vaguely sensed somebody was around. And sure enough, my husband pops out of the bushes. Aha, I caught you. And of course, a fight ensued because that's the way I am, right? And um, I walk into the house, and uh, you could hear, because I already took a slug, because I had it in my sock, and he found it, and he threw it down the sink. And we just started going at it. We got physical with one another. And, you know, this is, you know, how I operate under the influence of alcohol. So that's my powerlessness. And, um, you know, this would go on. Uh, I ran away from that marriage because that's what I do. I'm a runner. I don't know how. I have no coping skills. Um, and um, I come out to Long Island. And uh, this is... I'm now with the person that I was cheating on. This person has lots and lots of money. Um, he wants to marry me. In his mind, he thinks my husband's a monster because that's the story that I told him. And um, I'm in the throes of alcoholism. And I'm playing cat and mouse with this guy. You know, I'm putting, you know, he's not an alcoholic. He has this big, huge Italian family. And I have self-centered fear like nobody's business. I cannot answer the uh, phone, I can't answer the doorbell without taking some form of alcohol. I have it hidden all over the house. It's a full-time job. I am uh, probably around 88 pounds at this point. My hair is falling out. I have yellow, blotchy skin. Why this person would want me to be with them is beyond. You know, there are people that love us enough, and they pay a high price for that. But he did love me enough. And he would just, you know, he would just say, Karina, you have to come to terms with what's going on with you. Um, and so um, this went on for, I want to say, the better part of two years, back and forth, cat and mouse. He was a churchgoer. There was a lot of priests and nuns in his family background. Um, we were doing a lot of those functions. I would go to church, and I would kneel down, and I would say, God, please, Please help me not to drink anymore. And I would hear in, in, in large volume, who are you fooling? You know when you go home, you're going to go and you're going to drink anyway, right? And that's exactly what I did. I was drinking out of a walk-in closet in the end. I had two uh, tall bottles of vodka as boot trees, and um, that was what I did. I had no idea about the allergy and the obsession. And so... Um, in 2001, uh, I had come home. Uh, I was still had a job, believe it or not. I uh, had a job as a server, and my gay friend Steve, who I adored, we had so much fun on the job, he invited me to his home for the very first time, and he and his partner were going to cook a very 
beautiful meal for me. And um, I was trying to stay stopped, and I couldn't. And I got to that house, and um, they, he, his uh, partner was a chef, and uh, everything was done, and they asked me to get some ice, and I went into the ice box, and there was a bottle of Georgie vodka laying there. And that was the end of that. So the last thing I remember was this. I left their house. It was a 40-minute drive from where I was uh, dwelling, my dwelling place. Um, I remember getting on the highway, looking over my shoulder, and getting to the left lane, and I don't remember anything after that. Somehow I arrived at my home, and I pulled in front of that house, and I cried out to God the alcoholic prayer, God, please, I can't do this anymore. And he came. Because that was the first sincere prayer that I ever said. Um, there's a line in We Agnostic, um, and they give us God's terms. You know, what are God's terms? And God's terms for us to come is as soon as you are willing and honest enough to try. And as soon as is a time frame. You know, it's now. You know, I, I feel like I was like one of I was the Hebrews. You know, I, I was wandering around in the desert for 38 years. I got into Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 38 years old. And I can tell you the spiritual poverty that I experienced is uh, beyond measure. Like there's really no words that can describe that spiritual death, right? And um, I was completely empty, bankrupt, as Bill, Bill Wilson would say. All my scorecards read zero. I had nothing. And when I walked into that house, my, my person said, you know, have you been drinking? And my standard line was, are you crazy? Or I only had two, right? But this time I didn't say that. I said yes, and the tears just rolled down my face. You know, and that's that surrender. Because, you know, I had admitted complete defeat. And um, that was the beginning, really, of my spiritual walk, although I didn't know it at the time. And um, it would take some time um, the following day, I went back to work, and um, I had overheard somebody talking about um, meetings, and I had served this guy, this guy um, a coffee and muffin at 6 a.m. every morning. And um, I went over to him. This guy's name was Steve, too. And I said, Steve, do you know anything about this AA, AA thing? Um, I'm looking to get to a meeting, and he goes, I really don't, but I'll, I'll see if I can get you. I know that they have these books and stuff like that. Next day, he gave me what I now know is a meeting book, and I went to my very first meeting on a Saturday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and it was the Holy Spirit Church, and I sat in the parking lot watching all of you guys laughing and talking. I could not do that. I could not do that on my own esteem. Alcohol was a power greater than myself. It did for me what I could not do for myself. Um, I was riddled with self-centered fear. I was a shoe looker. Um, and uh, I can tell you, while I was not a golden slipper, I was definitely a slipper. I had three one-day slips during that period of trying to um, adhere to the AA principles, grasp and develop. And um, as God would have it, there was um, a liquor store uh, at uh, the corner of both meetings that I attended. Um, I would go on Saturday mornings and um, Tuesday evenings to these two groups. And I thought that was all of AA. I didn't know AA kind of branched out. So that's how um, closed off I was. Yeah. 
And so um, I had, you know, this, these boulders of belief systems that would just keep me in bondage, right? And um, I just, circumstances made me willing to believe that there was a God greater than myself, right? That there was something greater than myself. So I strung along 30 days in AA. But I remember that first meeting st- sitting in that parking lot, and I was like a petrified tree, literally. I could not move. Um, Fear gripped me by the throat. And I waited till you guys poured into the meeting. It was, you had to go down to get into the meeting. And I scurried into the back. And basically, that's what I would do. I would come late and leave early. You know, I definitely would not make eye contact. But that first day, the very first day, I sat there. I was in awe. I could not believe that there were people that thought like I thought and and did things that I did. Um, I wept the entire meeting. And trust me when I tell you, I was the girl with the leather jacket. You know, I rode my own bike. I'm a chick from Manhattan. I got it. I'm an I can do it myself kid. You know, I had a child at 16. I'm going to get it done, right? And, you know, I always relied on my own reasoning and my own resources marshaled by the will, right? And um, they failed me utterly which means completely. And, um, you know, I would sit around and, um, you know, kind of compare, you know. So uh, I would say uh, this went on, you know, just listening, and then my ego started to rebuild itself because that day I walked away with something I hadn't had in a very long time, which was hope. As I said, I was dead behind my eyes. There was nothing going on. And I had been through a marriage I was there, but I wasn't there. I raised children. I was not emotionally there at all. I was an emotional midget. I had no coping skills whatsoever. I was born and raised in Alcoholics Anonymous as far as I'm concerned, right? And so um, this second step, um, I just want to open to some of the literature that we have here. Oh, my Pauly. My husband, Paul. Paul is a very big uh, part of my sobriety. Um, uh, all through, since I've been asked to come speak, uh, and I'm so eager and grateful that um, grateful to the group uh, for inviting me here to share my experience, strength, and hope with uh, God and the steps and you guys, because it really. Um, forced me to press in and go back to the early days of my sobriety. And um, my husband, all along while I was um, reflecting and introspect, he'd say, God's got it, because that was his line. He would always say, God's got it, and that would just bring me back to, you know, I'm here to live out my third-step commitment to God. You know, I was in bondage of self, which simply meant it was me on me. I could not be out here, even though it looked like I was, right? And I, I asked God in my third step to relieve me of the bondage of self. And um, he responded. God responds. And uh, there was a clause in a condition in that eternal covenant between God and I. And that is that I am to stay close to him and perform his work well. And that I would share of uh, his power and his love and his way of life. And that's why I'm here today. To, I hope that God is the centerpiece of my talk because it is only through his grace that I stand before you. I have no power whatsoever to 
uh, come to you in this state that I am in now, which is a recovered state. I had no power to even get to my first meeting. I really didn't know how I got there, honestly, because Karina would not have driven to that meeting. I promise you, I would not have gotten down to those steps. Those women at the end of that meeting, I remember them all giving me numbers, and I took them all, you know, and I'm thinking, what do these people want from me? And it, like, I was just so bottled up. And as I drove home from that meeting, the, right out the window, I was throwing the numbers. I'm not calling anybody, right? They want something from me. But um, in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's uh, on page 25, the very last paragraph, it says, if you are seriously alcoholic as we were, and I was seriously alcoholic, we believe there's no middle-of-the-road solution. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible. My life was impossible. And if we had passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid, we had but two alternatives. I had two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could. And that's what I was doing. It wasn't working anymore. And the other was to accept spiritual help. And lo and behold, I kept going to that Saturday meeting, Saturday meeting. I'd show up drunk every once in a while. I'd get three weeks, I'd drink, come back. Grace of God. This woman came up to me, she had seven children, and she assigned herself as my sponsor. And, you know, I didn't want a sponsor because I did not respect authority. I thought a sponsor was going to tell me what to do. And if you, were, you know, if my mother couldn't tame me, you certainly are not going to tame me. This is the attitude that I walked in with, right? And I had built blocks of, uh, they were pain pavers, and I had built myself into this cave. Nobody's getting in or out. You know, and that was a really hard way to go, right? So these were my alternatives. And through the grace of God, you know, God was constantly pursuing me. We have a God that is a God of fidelity. 38 years I'm saying, no, you know, I, 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 I got it. Or, you know, I, uh, I couldn't even admit it, but I was angry at God. You gave me two rotten parents. That was my standard line. You know, you gave me two. Why couldn't I get one good parent? You know, and then to top it all off, you took the only thing I ever loved, which was my brother. And these were the resentments that I had with God, you know. And, um, and that would keep me in a state of ignorance and arrogance, right? And that would keep me in a state of um, sickness, right? And so um, I wanted to go into the second step, which is we agnostic. Right? And it deals with the belief systems that we have. You know, and I, like Bill, you know, had many of his belief systems. To Christ, I conceded a great man, right? And to those who followed him, very good people, great apostles. And I would take some of the stuff that was convenient and the rest I would leave behind. And then there were other times when I would see, you know, starving children and, and wars and people fighting in the name of God. Like, if there is a God, you know, step down, do something. So I would have these battles within myself. Um, and I would stand on uh, things like uh, ceremony, you know, or rituals that I, th that I would think that would be the thing that was going to help me. And again, you know, all of these things were counterfeit. I would come up empty. And we agnostic deals with that. Um, 
if you, I came in as a um, agnostic. Um, I was not an atheist. I knew that there was a God. I made all my sacraments as a child. I kind of felt like God was like a little boy that had touched a slug for the very first time. Like this was God, like it's smelly and it's stinky and God doesn't want to touch me. That's how I thought God was viewing me. Or he had a posture of pointing his finger at me, right? This was the way that I envisioned God. Or, um, you know, bad Santa Claus. He's making a list, he's checking it twice, I'm definitely naughty, I'm not nice, and I'm getting nothing, right? And so, you know, this reward system. And um, it would take a lot to break down the walls, the barriers that I created between me and God. And thank God for sponsorship. Um, God has a sense of humor. On page 55, he tells us where he is. You know, this, this seeking God, it's a game of hide and seek. I loved hide and seek. I was, a t I was always small for uh, my percentile. I was thin and tiny. I was shorter than I should be. I finally grew, but that's a whole other story for a different day. But when we were playing hide and seek, I would hide in, we'd have like a refrigerator and then there's these two tiny little cabinets. I could hide in there like Eddie Monster and I could watch everybody looking for me. I loved it, right? <laughs> and I feel like God is a little bit like that, right? So they tell us where he's hiding and we have to seek him. And we don't have to let God in. We have to let God out. Right? Because he's always been in there. And he says, it says, actually, we were fooling ourselves, for deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental, that means basic, idea of God. It might be obscured, blocked by calamity, ego, pomp, ego, by worship of other things. And by, on page 54, it tells me what other things could be blocking God not allowing him to come out. Well, people, sentiments, things, money, um, even myself, right? I actually think I'm God, even though I don't know it, because I'm relying on my own reasoning, right? Um, and so it says, um, he might be obscured, but in some form or another, it is there. For faith in a power greater than ourselves and miraculous demonstration of that power in human lives are facts as old as man himself. So we finally saw that faith in some kind of God was a part of our makeup. He's part of our DNA. We have God's DNA. That's a pretty awesome thought, you know? And so when I start to see these truths, it starts to break down these old ideas and God becomes less and less scary, you know? And I started to, you know, when I went through this with my sponsor, when we went through We Agnostic, I started to realize, because now I'm starting to form this little prayer life. I have a practice in place. Um, it's very fundamental. Um, there's books and things like that that's helping me along because I have parakeet head. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I started to notice that God was getting a little bit more uh, compassionate and a little bit more patient. And then I realized, well, I'm getting a little bit more passionate and I'm getting a little bit more compassionate and patient and kind. So there was a direct proportion relationship between God's personality and mine. 
And I started to realize those things. And it made me want to make a, a, an even closer approach. And so um, I love the fact that it talks about, you know, making this approach to God, that God is approachable. Because um, I didn't think God was approachable. I thought I had to come white as snow. But God, specifically my God, is a God come as you are. But he's not a God stay as you are. Right? Come as you are, but you're not going to stay as you are. And that's where the relationship starts to take off. You know, and um, this humbling willingness to want him. I remember driving home from the meeting one day. Now, I didn't know God the way that I know God now. But it's kind of strange how it went full circle for me. Because I was driving home. I always had convertibles. I never had a hard top. I was driving home from a meeting. And the stars were out. And I, I sensed something else with me. And I was on my way home and had a relative sense of peace, which I had never had before. And uh, I remember looking up at the stars, and there were quite a few, and saying, I don't know who you are or what you are, but please keep helping me. And that was the Holy Spirit. I didn't know that then. And I had a sense of relief. Um, I don't know. It's pretty hard holding up the world on your shoulders and trying to figure stuff out. But one of the greatest gifts that I have received from Alcoholics Anonymous is that I'm not alone and that I have an identity in God. Right. And um, that third step, you know, that third step prayer that I had made with my sponsor. I really didn't fully understand it, but I was totally willing to open my heart to it. Um, my understanding was that I thought I had to be I was going to be a Hare Krishna. I was going to walk around with a toga sheet. Like, how do you empty your mind? That's what I thought. Like, you can't have any thoughts. That's not what it is. It's, uh, it's about aligning my will with his will. In other words, to be concerned with the things God is concerned about, right? Which is his children. But, uh, you know, it was a fundamental thing for me in that I just had to be willing to open my heart and mind to something greater than myself, and I was. And the way that I describe it is like, I'd been climbing up this mountain, step one and two, and I was bruised and scratching and clawing my way up. And I was almost at the top, and I got to the top with my sponsor, and I had a choice. There's a turning point. There are no bottoms here. There are turning points. And I was at a turning point. And I could either go back down there, which I knew the comfortability of the uncomfortability, me running the show, and I can get bruised and stay back in that valley, or I could jump off that mountain into the unknown, which I now know to be the loving arms of God, into the mystery of life. And I was willing to do that because I didn't know what the next step was. And the way that that manifested itself was I picked up the pen. I was willing to take direction from my sponsor, which I had never, ever been willing to take direction from anyone, ever. Um, and so um, I kind of skipped around a little bit I'm not even sure if I told you my sober date, but my sober date is December 26, 2001. And um, I did not quit drinking on that day. God separated me from alcohol. I had no power to do that. Um, the last day of drinking was Christmas Day. And that was, I was out to dinner with my 
then 19-year-old son, and my mother. I went to take her out for Christmas dinner. And of course, she touched a button, and I drank. And um, on, I asked my son, I had the presence of mind, and it was not the worst drunk. I had two shots. I really did have two shots. <laughs> I asked him to drive the car, and he drove us home. And I remember thinking, I'm going to go back to that AA and do it AA's way. And um, through the grace of God, I was able to do that. Thank you for letting me share. Let's thank our speaker again, Karina. Thank you so much. How about our secretary's report? Is Joey here? Come on up. Hello, everyone. I am Joey. I'm your recovered, uh, excuse me, recovered alcoholic secretary. Hello. Uh, in keeping with the seven tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, we have some guys passing around the basket. As it's going around, I've asked Matt to come up and read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in this group may identify as recovered rather than recovering, and what exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. No one better to do so than Matt. So please welcome him. Thank you. I just want to say thank you for having me and the Mastermind family in this beautiful church. Um, I think you just met me, but I'm definitely not the best person to be talking about this. I'm very new to this. In uh, late August, I finally admitted to myself that I was powerless over alcohol, and my life was becoming unimaginable. Um, it's been a soul-searching, self-reflective, humbling, spiritual, strange trip. And it's already started to change me for the better, and I know it will continue to change me for the better and better as I go through the 12 steps and attend Alcohol Anonymous. So the reading is called Recovered. We are not cured of alcoholism, recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our entire lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in the body. That's on page 23. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered and are recovering. Nineteen forty style big book sponsorship from the forward of the second edition, Alcoholics Anonymous, of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried. Fifty percent got sober at once and remained that way. Twenty five percent sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe and experience is that God has not changed over time. 
and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75 plus percent success rate. It's a beautiful thing. Um, all right, so is there anyone at this time that would need a sponsor? Awesome, man. What's your name? Brad. Brad? Awesome, dude. Anyone else? Mallory. Mallory. Great. Thank you, Mallory. Matt. Awesome, man. Someone else? Sorry, I can't see well. All right. um, Now, anyone here are recovered alcoholics by chance? Beautiful. So you all get together, join with God, and forget about it. You know, that's it. All right. Um, Announcements. All right. So inner group is where you buy AA literature. Medallions is also responsible for the where and when and scheduling AA hotline. Stop by and pay them a visit. BCIC is responsible for bringing meetings into excuse me, meetings into places where people like us cannot get out to an AA meeting, such as jails, detoxes, rehabs. They meet monthly to organize at the 12-step house. Any BCIC? Javi, right? Everyone, this is Javi. Please see him if you'd like to get involved. We have planning meeting for the picnic. There's always a picnic. That's why you got to love AA. Um, all, there will be flyers in the back as well for um, all the information. Next one. Karina, very blessed to have you here with us for the next couple of weeks, and uh, you were awesome. So stand by. Also, Joe B. will be following up in October, so that's exciting. And Monday night, big book study, third floor of this building, uh, 7.15, Um There will be cookies there, too. Um, good luck losing weight here, but it'll be... Yeah, yeah. So, but it's a beautiful thing. Um, Big book study, page by page, we go through the book. That's it. All right. Okay. We do have CDs, mugs, larger big books, little bed books, and big book dictionaries for sale in the back if you'd like to pr- procure any of those. We meet every Thursday, start promptly starting at 7.15. Come early for some fellowship and cookies. And we ask you to be courageous and ready to begin at the sound of the bells. Thank you all. See you next week. Uh, we have tonight's session and all the past speakers' podcasts at alcoholicsandgod.org. Invite everyone to come to Monday night's meeting at uh, 7.15. And I want to thank Corinna D. again tonight for a great message. She's going to be with us. She's going to be with us the next two weeks. And uh, if you'd like to thank her, we're going to line up right down in the middle, and you can uh, give her uh, your thank you for telling her a great story tonight and doing the first three steps. And we'll all close with the Lord's Prayer seated. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil 
Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever.
thousands and oh, when you smiling. When you laughing, ba 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 da. When you laughing, yes, the sun comes shining through. But when you crying. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine. 
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. Each way flies blooming 
screaming all the time outside my door. Never before. I had to change everything to realize that today is the best day of my life. This broken man I traveled far and wide through the great divide through his own heart. Yeah. Just about as long. So I face each day in a brand new way. Show up and plug in my guitar. And I play my songs. And people sing along. And stomp their feet and raise their arms. And here in this moment that we share. song is. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye. I think you know this one, don't you?
Take me, take me. Got one man that just won't save me. 